Lord, I pray that for those of us who belong to Christ Jesus, our sins and the flesh, God, they've been nailed to the cross, it says in Galatians 5. Lord, and since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or jealous of one another. And God, I just pray in these moments, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Lord, I pray that in these moments, God, that Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll speak. God, that you and you alone will be glorified. And God, that when we walk out of this place, we'll be changed to be more like you and less like ourselves. And so, Lord, I thank you for these people who are here. They, they could have been anywhere else. God, but they chose to be here. And so, Lord, I pray that our time is not wasted. Lord, that we seek you. And that you change our lives forever. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Joe, will you do me the slightest favor and, like, turn these lights off? You don't have to turn them off, but if you'll turn them down like a half a click, that'd be awesome because it freaks me out preaching. Not, not, don't say that word. Speaking to people and train lights or something. I don't know. Anyway, this leads into what I really want to tell you um, because I was thinking a lot in the last couple of weeks about the time that I felt the most out of control in my whole life. And uh, it happened, actually, I, I finished college in December and lived in Mobile, went to the University of Mobile, and then was gonna, I came home, which here is home for me. I came home for Christmas and then was going to go back down there to work. And during that Christmas, New Year's break, I took a mission trip to Japan. Okay, so there were several people who weren't in Mobile and so we all kind of took connecting flights to get us to Houston, Texas, and then we flew on to Japan from there. So when I got dropped off at the airport by my mom and my dad and my Aunt Susie, and we got to the airport, and then I was hungry, and I got through the check-in, whatever, and so I got me a donut and some orange juice, which is fine. Donuts and orange juice, that sounds like breakfast food. So I get to the gate, I get on the plane, get settled in, we get 30,000 feet in the air, and I don't feel good. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it's not good. And I remember thinking, I'm going to push the call button, and I don't know what I'm going to say when she gets here, but I think I'm going to need some help in some way. And two things you need to know about me. Um, one is I'm a control freak. I want to be the boss of the world because then I will control the world and everything will be as I want it to be. And the other thing is that I have a tendency to pass out. And I'm not kidding about that. Like, I'm pretty sure the first time was when I was two, right? My parents are here. Okay, so who, what two-year-old passes out, by the way? Apparently, I do. And, like, it could happen for any number of reasons because I ate tacos. <laughs> Um, because I get nervous, <laughs> watch out, um, because of stress or because I see blood. I mean, there's no, like, trigger. It's just like, oh, looky there. There she goes, <laughs> you know. So I remember, you know, reaching for the call, 
and then it was out 30,000 feet in the air on an airplane. First leg of a trip before we go to Japan, okay? So I wake up, and when you do these, when you take a flight, you always get the instructions, you know, in the unlikely event that the cabin should lose pressure, oxygen mass will drop from the ceiling. You will then put it on your face and then help others, okay? So I don't know if you know, but I know now, you can get only one of those to drop down at a time because when I woke up, I was wearing it. It was on my face, okay? They say the thing won't inflate. It doesn't. And by the way, again, I don't know how you get that to happen because I've flown since then and have looked up, not that I would pull it down just for kicks, but I wondered, like, how do you get one of those things to drop down by itself? I don't know. So then the other half of that was, as I wake up, I hear what you see in movies all the time. You know, somebody saying, ladies and gentlemen, if there's a doctor on the plane, if you will please report to seat 23B. 23, and I'm like, what seat am I? Okay, so I'll see him in a minute. Um, so the doctor, is, there's a doctor on the plane. He comes and kneels down beside me. And we talk about the orange juice and the donut and the, you know, occasional hypoglycemicness that I have, which by all means, eat a donut and drink some orange juice before you get on a plane. So we talk about that. Things are settling down. I'm like, no, I'm fine. Check my blood sugar. You know, it's like 46. I don't know what it was. I just made that up. So then things are beginning to calm back down. And I'm like, okay, everybody's, I'm good. I'm awake. Promise I'll try not to do that again. And about that time, I hear the flight attendant come back onto the air and say, Ladies and gentlemen, when we arrive at the gate, we will handle our medical emergency first. If you will just stay seated, we'll let the paramedics come on the plane. I'm like, It's not an emergency. Like, I just need a Coke, okay? Just stand down, everybody. So then, as if that's not enough, then they're like, well, we've got another pilot who's in first class, and he's going to switch seats with you. And I was like, oh, good. So I'll just say hello to everyone as I make my way to first class. The only time I've ever been in first class. So if you want to be in first class and not have to pay the fees, apparently just go unconscious for a few seconds. So then as I'm making my way to the first class, as everyone's like, oh, there she is, then, of course, the flight attendant comes back on the air to say, um, ladies and gentlemen, actually, the paramedics will not be there when we arrive, so we will let you disembark the plane first, and then we'll take care of our medical emergency. And thank you for flying Delta. You know, it's like, <laughs> if ever, just dial it down with a medical emergency. So we do finally get bored. We get to the gate, and everyone leaves the plane as I sit by myself in first class as the people come and clean and vacuum and take the trash. And I'm still sitting there because we're waiting on the paramedics. And I'm like, I've got to get a plane to Japan. I don't know if you heard me the first time. So I'm just like, the paramedics come on board. They're like, would you like to go to the hospital? No, I don't want to go to the hospital. I want to go to Japan. Where is the piece of paper I can sign to get to Japan? So anyway. That is absolutely, other than probably this moment, the most out of control I've ever felt in my whole life. 30,000 feet in the air, in a plane, and every, I'm just like, please just let me die. Anyway, but when we got to Japan, this has a point. It's not a very good one, but there is one. Um, so when we get to Japan, we're there, and there was a pastor who preached a sermon at that time, and he actually preached, I forgot to tell Keith this. Keith, this is going to be important. Pay attention to this. Um, 
he actually preached his sermon kind of in reverse order. He started at the end and worked his way back up through the passage. And that's actually what we're going to do tonight. And I know it sounds ridiculous because you think, well, God put it in order for a reason. Yes, he did. And you're going to see what that reason is after we talk about it backwards. So we've been in Philippians, and we're just going to keep going right through to the very next verses. Um, Kenny was preaching last week. He ended in the end of Philippians 3. We're going to pick up in Philippians 4. And just as a snippet of a review, um, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he's, Paul's speaking. Remember, Paul's in prison and giving an amazing amount of encouragement to be someone who's in prison. And he says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. And the thing about Christ is that his 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 um, his boast, I guess, was never, ever, ever in himself. He even went so far, if you'll remember, in a passage to say, I have the right, essentially, to, to say all of these things about myself. However, there's nothing worth living for but Jesus. There's nothing but Christ. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else counted it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. He goes on and he says, For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears, with, with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. They think only about their life here on earth. And I, I got to thinking, I was like, well, I guess you have to ask yourself the question, you know, do you crave the things of this world? Because if you do, then the only conclusion could be that you're not a follower of Christ. That's biblically, that's the conclusion you have to come to. But in the end of chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, but we're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting on him to return as our Savior. And so you go right into the next verse, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 is where technically we're going to start. And he starts with a word. He says, therefore. And John Piper pointed this out one time, and I thought this was so great. I wish somebody had told me this like 20 years ago. But he said, therefore is just another word for so. Y'all probably do that. But so. So you look at verse 4, and you just put so in there instead of therefore. And... It just said, you, you almost want to say, well, so what? Well, so, if you have to go back up to verse 20 to see how it connects, but we're citizens of heaven, so, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. The NASB, it says, stand firm in the Lord. Paul says, I love you and long to see you, dear friends. You are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. So because you are citizens of heaven, Stay true to the Lord. Stand firm because you are citizens of heaven. Stay, stay true. We talked a lot about um, how this is a Roman city now. They know about war. They know about standing firm. They know about man in a post. They know about not giving up, not backing down. And Paul has a deep, deep love for these people. And just the whole crux of this whole talk is going to depend on the fact that you have to understand true love in order to understand this passage. Because there's a great misconception in society today 
that if you love somebody, then you tell them what they want to hear. And Paul couldn't be further from that. Paul is continuously, even in 2 Corinthians chapter um, 9, I think it is, it's either 8 and 9, 8 or 9, read them both. Um, he, he talks about how he knows that his words brought pain, and he's sorry for that. But he's not sorry because it brought about repentance. And that's where Paul's love comes from. He's somebody who loves them enough to tell them the truth. No matter, truth has to be partnered with grace. You can't just walk around telling everybody what they're doing wrong and pointing fingers and throwing stones, essentially. You've got to know that the same judgment you put on somebody is on you, too. And you have to go to that person in love, no matter what, no matter what. It has to be done in love. And to love somebody really means that you're not willing to watch them ruin their life and sin. So the next verse is, I was sitting in a parking lot eating my lunch because I just could not be in the bank for another second of the day. So I got my lunch and I went and sat in a parking lot. And I was looking at a building, I don't even know which one it was now, but I was just looking and thinking about how we see the outside, we all know this, we, we see the outside of a building, the roof, the bricks, the walls, the whatever. But that's just one piece of that puzzle. That somewhere in there, there were all these different layers that had to begin to take shape in order for you to get this final product here. And that's kind of how we're going to approach this passage, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. We're going to kind of start at the roof. So we're going to start in verses 8 and 9. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And it says, now, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. This is the final thing. This is the roof. This is the, the final product. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and praiseworthy, worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing then the God of peace will be with you. And I, I'm sure nobody else struggles with this, but nobody lives at my house, and so it's just me. And so my mind wanders all the time. All I have to do is think. There's nobody to talk to. I talk to people sometimes, but they're not there. So it's still just me talking to me, I suppose. There's nothing to keep me focused sometimes. So I thought about why don't we make a more concerted effort to think about the things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And, I mean, if you've been alive, you know it's because of the way the flesh cries out for ungodly things all the time, every second of every day. Is it not, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but is it not like a, a second by millisecond by millisecond battle? to keep your mind where it needs to be. He says, you know, fix your thoughts. Think about things. Keep putting into practice. This is purposeful. Obedience isn't accidental. You don't accidentally obey. You purposefully obey. You purposefully put your mind somewhere. And I think that's what's, what really is disgusting about cultural Christianity, that there's no, there's no discipline to it. There's no purpose. There's no... There's no intent on doing the right thing. Just to be purposeful. I thought about, you know, what you fantasize about. <laughs> what you hold is truth and righteous. What you wear, 
when you want to be admired by other people. What you listen to impacts your thoughts. What you watch impacts your thoughts. The right thing to do, even when it hurts and even when it costs us something. This may be too much information, but I think a whole lot less cuss words when I listen to a lot less cuss words. You know, where your mind is, how important it is to think on the right things. Put your mind in that place. Fix your thoughts. It's not a part-time practice. It's, a, it's an intentional discipline. Isaiah 26, 3, it says, You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. And it's, it's because it's an it's a eternal perspective. It's not a temporal perspective. It's not just what I want for this moment. It's purposefully seeking after eternity. So that's, that's your top layer. So I've got to get my thoughts, my thoughts, put every thought there, the top layer, fixing your thoughts. And just before that, backing up to verse 6 and 7, it says, don't worry about anything. You know, how many times does what you're worrying about impact or dictate or control what you're thinking about? It does for me a lot. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Hmm. I was sitting at my desk at my house last night, and I just got really bothered, I guess, by trying to make this okay. Trying to make it less than superficial to just say, don't worry about anything. Just pray about everything and God will give you peace. Because that's extremely, I don't even know the right word, except it's hurtful, I really think, to just say, oh, don't worry about that. Just pray about it. It'll be fine. And so, even reading commentaries and trying to say, okay, God, how do you explain? No, really, don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. And um, God and I kind of had a conversation, and he reminded me about a conversation I had with Kasha. Uh, this, the, the first year of Simple Church wrecked my life, okay? It took everything that I'd ever known, everything I'd ever learned, anything, everything, and just like ripped it all apart and built it back up again. And I don't know exactly why, but about, and this may sound really silly, so you're just gonna have to bear with me for a minute, okay? Um, but I really, I really don't know why, other than God was just creating a new dream. But about six months in, I just really felt I, I, grief, just felt really heartbroken and really sad and really like something had died and couldn't put my finger on it for a while and just had this real heartbreak. I cried all the time when I got to church. You know, Kenny would say, hey, good morning. I'd be like, good morning. <laughs> okay, I'm fine. Uh, just, I mean, just really ridiculous. I finally got to the point where I looked at him and I said, I'm so sick of crying. This is ridiculous. But I was um, really, y'all are going to think I'm being stupid, but I'm serious. This, whatever. Um, I really just felt like this dream of being married and adopting children was dying. This is not going to happen for me. And that's okay. We'll get to that in a minute. 
But I really felt like I really was grieving the lo- a loss, a loss of something that I had wanted my whole life. Every little girl wants to be, you know, wear a big, pretty white dress and walk down an aisle and say, I do, and, you know, Prince Charming and yada, yada, yada. So, you know, I was no different. And I was at home one day and crying, asking God what to do and how we were going to fix this and what needed to be done. And he told me specifically to talk to Kasha, and he said, and this is the question I want you to ask. And she may kill me for telling you this story, but she doesn't come back for three days, so I got three more days. Um, But I got to church, and I started making deals with God like we all do. You know, I'm like, God, Kasha is very busy. And, okay, so if nobody's talking to her, I'll go talk to her. This was in the other building before we moved. Have you ever seen Kasha just, like, standing alone? She's always talking to somebody. Somebody always wants a piece of her time. That was a sure bet for me. There was going to definitely be somebody talking to her. But, of course, there wasn't. So I had to take something kind of over. There was a counter that ran along beside where the door was for the kids' department. So I had to go take something over there. And I went and laid my stuff down. I turned around, and she's just standing there by herself. And I was like, awesome, can we talk? So we go in a room, and we sit down, and I said, okay. I said, I don't know why, but I feel like, I feel like my hopes and dreams are dying. I've never wanted to be pregnant, but there's 132 million orphans in the world, and I'll take them all. There's not a number of adoption that I've reached yet that I didn't say okay to if I had the chance. And I told her, I said, I just feel like this hope and this dream of mine is dying. And I said... I said, here's the question that I got to ask you. I said, when, when everything fades, when everybody goes home, when all the Sunday school answers are over, and it's just you, what makes it okay that your daughter died? And she said, I know God has a plan. And I said, you know, that's the only thing I could come up with either. I know God has a plan. I know he does. The whole book is based on that. The whole thing. So when I tell you, don't worry. Instead, pray about everything. Those aren't just fluffy little Sunday school words. God has a plan, and I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know what it is for me. All I know for certain is that, yeah, there's, there's a part of me that still wants to be married and still wants to adopt 132 million orphans. I wouldn't take anything for being right here with you people, every single one of you. I wouldn't take anything for that. This is the plan that God has for my life. And I could not have even imagined this was on the radar of things that he had for my life. Not a fat clue. I heard John uh, MacArthur, I think, is the one that said, I don't know, somebody, I read a bunch of people. It says that when you worry about things, it's basically functional atheism. You're living as though God doesn't exist as if he's not the all-sovereign ruler overall. And that doesn't mean that you don't have things that are are worthy of worry. It doesn't mean that there are things that are going to get easier just because you don't worry. It doesn't mean anything other than the fact that God is sovereign 
and he has a plan. And when he talks in Matthew chapter 6, it's the whole passage of don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about where you're going to live. Don't worry. He is in control. It feels like he's not. I got you. It really does. Some days feel like he's not in control. But I promise you he is. I promise you he really is. In verse 6, the end of verse 6, it says, Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's done. And I thought, you know, how many minutes have I wasted worrying and whining and complaining when I could have been thankful? Thankful for this, for sure. This is, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. It's happened as a part of this church. He really does know better what I need than I do. He really does know better. John MacArthur, he said, it's how you think about you or your problems. It's how you think about God. How you think about God will control your spiritual life. If you have a perspective on who God really is and how he really is in control, then it changes the way you think about everything in your life. And so that's another layer. Before that, before the do not worry it's, on, it's on, top, well, on top of do not worry, I should say. It says, always be full of joy in the Lord. You think, well, it's, it's a lot harder to worry if I'm full of joy in the Lord. Not just made up joy, not just like, oh, I'm going to watch a funny movie, but like in the Lord. Always be full of joy in the Lord. He says, I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. John MacArthur, he, he's so much smarter than me. That's why I talk about him all the time. He says, show me a person whose who spiritual stability in any situation, who's spiritually stable in any situation, then I'll show you a person who is perfectly tuned into an understanding of God that surpasses any circumstance. He knows God is beyond all his trouble. He had the funniest thought, I, I thought. He said, if you... He said, I think people who just worry about needless things for no reason, he said, we ought to take them and we ought to lock them in a room by themselves and nobody talk to them. We'll just slide food in and out to them every now and then. And he said, we'll give them a Bible and we're not going to let them out until they've memorized the entire book of Psalms. Because then they'll have a much better understanding of the world around them. And I thought about Corey Tim Boom and that book, y'all. If y'all don't read The Hiding Place, I'm coming after you. Seriously, that's what happened to her. She was put in solitary confinement. She had a Bible that she smuggled in, and she memorized the thing. And then she got out and went to a concentration camp and saw the glory of God in all of that. That is her life. That is exactly what happened. But do you think about how he really is? He's our rescuer. He's our stronghold. He's our help in trouble. He's our refuge. He's our provider. He's our healer. He's our everything. But if you don't know Scripture then you don't know that. No wonder you don't have any hope. No wonder we don't know. We, no wonder the world starts to look dark and gloomy and dim when we don't know Scripture. And he says it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to know it in every fiber of your being and have a joy based on that alone. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be instantly fixed, but it does mean he promises he's going to be with us. He holds our tears in his hands. He knows our every breath. He knows everything about us. He knows how to provide for us. And when you start trusting in that, when that is your whole, that drives everything you think, that drives everything you know, everything you want, that changes your whole life. He says, let everyone see that you're considerate 
in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. I get so tired of being considerate of other people. Can't I just be selfish for one day? No, you cannot, as a matter of fact. You have to be considerate of other people. You have to have that kind of shift in your thinking because you got to think about, too, if you're considerate of other people, if you're thinking about somebody else and somebody else's needs, you're not thinking about your own, and you're not dwelling on what you're missing because you're trying to serve somebody else. You're trying to, to invest in somebody else. All of that, we keep building here to another layer, and it says, you know, be considerate, and all you do is on top of a layer that's a story of two women who need reconciliation. He says, now I appeal to you, Yodia and Syntyche. And if you've, that's who he's talking to. So it's funny to me that he talks about being considerate, and he's fixing to talk about two women who need to consider somebody else. Now, remember, this is the way I think it went. I don't have a... I don't have anything to prove this. I just think this is how it went. I think Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. Somebody got it. I don't know, the pastor, a leader, whoever. And they, didn't, they weren't going to pass it around because if you give it to somebody, then they might not give it to the next person. You know, They may hold on to it. They're like, no, I want to keep it. I want to hold this forever. So you just gather everybody up. You just say, okay, Tuesday, 6 o'clock, or Wednesday, get it, 6 o'clock, we're going to meet together, and I'm going to read the letter of Paul. Okay, we're all going to be here. We're all going to listen. All right, so they're sitting here. They've, we've gone through three whole chapters of Paul's instruction and Paul's encouragement and Paul talking to the whole church, and then he gets down to, now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. He calls two women out by name in the church. <laughs> okay. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. So that, that little phrase right there, the my true partners, it's a word, it's Sisychus. Uh, and there's some debate on whether or not that was actually somebody's name. For instance, um, Barnabas, who helped Paul, was known as the son of encouragement. Barnabas means son of encouragement, but Barnabas is an encourager to Paul. And so there's some who think that maybe the Sisychus wasn't just a word like a, you know, to, he's speaking to somebody directly, no doubt, but maybe that was even the guy's name. And um, he needs this person to help these two women get it straightened out. And I, I put on Facebook last night, because this hit me last night when I was looking over this again, um, is the one thing that's supposed to set us apart as Christians is our love, our love for the Lord and our love for each other. That's what he says, the two greatest commandments. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. That we have to support each other. We have to love each other. When there's a disagreement, you have to work it out. We have accountability to each other. And don't, I mean, come on. We come in this building because we know we're going to get encouraged, either by other people they're in the room or by the word or whatever. We need each other. We need that accountability. We need that encouragement. We need those things from each other. Part of our spiritual stability depends on other people. If we're building these layers, this is really, this is the foundation of what he's going to build everything else on is his relationships. And I want to tell you a story. If I can get through it, don't. Come on. So, Dawn and I 
and Kenny worked together at church before we came here. And I don't know who knows, it doesn't matter, we're just going to tell you all about it anyway. Um, you could have written our names in that verse. And I want to tell you this story because it's not just words on a page. It's real life. It really is applicable to today. And you could have said, you know, I appeal to you, Connie and Dawn, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, Kenny, to help these two, for they worked hard in telling about the good news. And Dawn and I worked together with preteens. Keith, there's a picture of the preteens on there, if you'll show that. I just found this the other day. Look at our babies. My word. So this was the very first event we ever did together. That's when we took what seemed like 150,000 people ice skating in a Johnny Rockets. And I misunderstood the Johnny Rockets thing. And Kasha just came in basically and kicked everybody out of the restaurant one by one so that we would have tables to sit in. And then a tire like started falling apart and I thought I was gonna die on the way home. But anyway, and then this was one of the last things we did. This was our preteen camp. And uh, there's a real tall guy in the middle there. That's Keith, I'm sure you're surprised. <laughs> Nobody knew it was you, Keith. But anyway, Dawn and I worked together in the preteens and Cassidy was a preteen at that point. So that's how I got to know all of them originally. And I made some terrible, terrible leadership decisions. I, I was a leader that was not humble. I, I would humbly and regrettably admit I wasn't prayerful about a lot of decisions. Um, I just was extremely arrogant. I led like some people I had seen, and that wasn't the right people to emulate. And I hurt Dawn very much. And so we got through a year. We started working together in January. We got all the way through December, where we went to the youth winter retreat. And we slept in a cabin. That's the coldest thing I've ever slept in in my life. It was awful. They, have, they didn't have heaters. They just had these little space heaters. And we about froze to death. And we had been in Gatlinburg during the day and had driven back. I dropped off the kids that were in my van. And Kenny had dropped off the kids that were in his van. And um, then I hitched a ride with him back to our cabin. And Kenny had been driving like a maniac up and down this hill all weekend long. And I get in, it's just me and him in the van, and he's creeping along. And I'm like, I mean, are, did, are you drunk? What's the matter? Like, why are we not getting it to the cabin? We got things to do, man. And so he just looked, I didn't say anything. I was just kind of looking. He looked over at me, and he said, you know I'm your friend, right? What have I done now? Yes, I know you're my friend. <laughs> okay, what? What do you want from me? And he blatantly and rightfully, and thank God he did, told me all the ways that I had been wrong and all the things that I needed to fix. And we got to the worship service that night, and I do what y'all do, what I talked about earlier. I'm sitting in the very back, and Dawn's sitting in the very front, and I'm sitting back there going, God, okay, fine, but if one more song, and God says, go to her. And I went, what am I going to say? And I really think he probably went, what do you mean, what are you going to say? You're going to apologize. Go down there. You know, this is kind of the conversation we're having. And so I, I went to Dawn and gave a very terrible apology that I just couldn't get. I mean, I kept saying, I told the Lord, I said, I don't know what to say other than I'm sorry. And so that's just what I said. And it was, it was a pitiful effort on my part. And thankfully, Sunday she even said, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. 
thankfully, praise you, Jesus, for that. But that, if Kenny had not done that to me, I miss this friendship. Y'all, I'm telling you, you mess with Dawn, I'll kill you. I mean, this woman is one of my favorite people on earth now. Because one guy, because God called us out using one man. But that's my piece. I wish Kenny was here too to tell her speak. That's my piece of the story. You tell. Well, um, Connie's not all to blame, for sure. I did not handle my end of the situation very well either. And um, I lashed out at her. And when she apologized to me, I apologized to her. And I mean it but I didn't let it go. And so that was way before Simple Church when we, you know, we were deciding, you know, as God, my family and I were praying about whether to come or not. And I remember, you know, just the Holy Spirit saying, you can't take that spirit of unforgiveness to that place. Not the place that I'm ordaining, you know. And with all my heart, I wanted to be here. But I, I knew if I couldn't get past it, I couldn't come. So I called Kenny. And I was like, listen, I need you to help me pray about something. And he was like, sure, you know, what is it? And I said, you know, we're still praying about what to do. There was a lot of um, things to consider and... I said, um, the deal with Connie. You know I me, mean? he knew exactly what I was talking about. And I said, I just feel like the Lord is letting me know that if I cannot let it go, I can't be a part of Simple Church. And I mean, I was weeping. I don't even know how I got that out. I was broken because I. I didn't know how to let it go because I wanted to and I, I liked her and I loved her and I, but there was still that that bitterness and that resentment and that that feeling of you know just that anger would flare up every now and then and he said so you're telling me and I was like <laughs> um, the God that created the universe that is speaking to your heart about this situation that has led you in every step of your life and has, you know, brought Connie into your life and the things that y'all did together. You're telling me that God can't mend your relationship and make it perfect again. And I was like, that's not what I'm saying. And he was like, yes, it is. You know, and... And, you know, I let him go. I was like, okay, thank you. And so, you know, I just hit the floor and just prayed and prayed and prayed for days and weeks and months and said, God, please take this from me. Whatever it takes, just take it from me. So I felt so much better, and I typed out a message like four different times over the past, you know, two years to send to her. Like, I just want to say I'm sorry again, even though we've already covered it. You know, I just felt like she was going to think I was being really dumb, you know, to bring it back up. But in my heart, I knew I was wrong 
because I wasn't doing what I felt like I needed to do, and that was completely cleared up with her, but I just kept holding back. You know, the pride thing, I mean, you just, you don't want to look stupid, you want to justify why you're really not that wrong, and all this stuff, but you feel it. There's a tension or a, I don't know, just a, a division there, and so I read The Hiding Place. I borrowed Kayla's book, and I read The Hiding Place, and there's a part in the book where the sisters are in the concentration camp together. And I don't know why I thought about Connie, but I was so engrossed in that book, and the sisters were separated, and they were dying, and they were starving, and they were <clears throat> being mistreated, and all this stuff, and they were in a huge group, and they were walking, and I mean, like, I was with them. I was walking with them, too. I mean, I was in the book. I mean, like, I was character in the book. And Corey sees her sister from the back. And she knows that everything's going to be okay because they're there together. And she goes up, and she just grabs her hand. And they're together from then on. And... And they tell everybody about the Lord that they're with. And, you know, so many lives are changed. And everything is so much better because even though it's terrible, they're not alone. God put them back together. And I just, in my mind, that was me and Connie serving the Lord. And just, I don't know, the Holy Spirit was just working in my heart through that book. And so I was like, you need to read The Hiding Place, you know, and... Then I was thinking, it's more than that. You know, I need to tell her what God put on my heart, you know, even if she thinks it's silly. So her birthday was coming up, and I got her the hiding place for her birthday. And I walked right back there. I was like, come here. I want to talk to you for a second. I had the bag. I said, before I give you this, I need to, I need to talk to you for a minute. And it was hard to get it out, but once I did, I knew it was right, and I knew that God was right there with us, because God placed it on my heart to clear it up, to get it out, to, you know, just let it be over, because what happened wasn't, in the grand scheme of things, significant. It was something that the enemy was using to tear down everything that God wanted to do within us as a team, because we were a team. And we were a good team, but the enemy saw a spot, and boy, he just went to tearing up, you know, tearing it wide open, and and we let it happen. And I just want to encourage everybody, you know, whether you have this with somebody or nobody yet, you know, just be on guard, guard your heart above everything else, because it, you know, it marks out the course of our life, and. When God places a friend or somebody in your life that you have a relationship with, take care of that. And don't place yourself above other people. And I'm so thankful for Kenny and Connie and Simple Church and my journey to Simple Church and all the things that have been hard and confusing and, you know, within that journey because God is being glorified here and that's the whole purpose. And people's lives are being changed. And we're, we're growing together. We're all a team. We're all in this together. And it made me think about, um, I told Connie this right before the service when we were praying 
Um, you know, we're talking about Joseph on Sunday mornings and his whole life, bless him. I mean, he goes through some terrible things. And at the end, when he's faced with a point of forgiving his family or just shoving it in their face or helping them or not helping them, he says, you meant to harm me, but God used that for his good. And he saved all these people because of that. And I just can't help but think about that. What the enemy meant for evil, God has used for good. And I'm so thankful for you. And I'm so thankful for Kenny. And I'm so thankful for every single person in here each week. It just brings such a joy to know that the enemy has no power over God's people. He just don't. Mm -mm. Thank you. Thank you. I want to hold your hand. <laughs> um, I told Kenny one day, I said, I will, I will never, ever, 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 ever shut up about what you did. And he told me, of course, because of who he is, he said, the Lord did that. And I said, you're right. He did. He really did. But he used a man who was obedient to do it. So I made this silly little picture. Keith, put that little picture of the house up there. So this is what we built. So you start at the bottom with a story of the two ladies. You stay true to the Lord. Someone loves you enough to help. You have right relationships. You're full of joy in the Lord, considerate and unselfish. Don't worry and pray. You'll have God's peace. Fix your every thought. Put into practice all you've learned, and God will be with you. You know, it's like Dawn said. What would we have missed out on if we didn't let God do that work? Because the man had to use the words, and then at some point... She and I had to do business with the Lord. And I, I don't know. It's another one of those things I don't know. I don't know who you struggle with. I don't know if you go to them, if they're going to be receptive. I don't know how that's going to go. But I know individually we have a responsibility, whether somebody responds to that or not. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for you. God, I'm thankful that you restore, that you heal the brokenhearted, that you didn't leave us where we were. God, I'm thankful for our pastor and for his wife and for their words of encouragement and above all, God, for their desire to be more like you every day. God, I pray that you'll keep them safe. I thank you for their, their opportunity to go and be refreshed. And God, I pray that you'll keep them safe as they come home. And God, we really didn't get up here to tell a bunch of stories about me or about us for nothing. The whole point 
really is to say, you have done a work in our lives. You did that, Lord. I didn't deserve it. Sometimes I didn't ask for it. You did it anyway. Lord, I'm thankful. God, I pray. It may have been just for me, but God, I pray that in this moment, if there's anybody here who needs you, God, that they won't let pride stand in the way. Lord, I pray you'll be glorified in these moments. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll stand with us, please.